Hello, and welcome to a slightly different version of the University of Michigan Natural History Museum's podcast series. For any regular listeners, you'll know that typically the museum's podcasts serve as a secondary source for the Science Cafe series, but in celebration of the University of Michigan's recent B Campus USA certification, we're coming at you with something just a little different. So before we jump into anything, my name is Lindsay Gooch. I am a program assistant at the University of Michigan's Office of Campus Sustainability, and I am so excited because today we're going to be talking about all things pollinators. I've got three amazing experts here to talk about everything from the very basics of pollinators and pollination to the University of Michigan's sustainable landscaping efforts and the new B Campus USA certification to how you can get involved with a pollinator conservation effort in your very own backyard. So without any further ado, I'll have my first guest introduce herself. Hi, my name is Dr. Michelle Farron. I am a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Michigan. And in my PhD, I studied pollinators, the environment, and their diseases. Mostly, I was focused on trying to understand how the environment influenced pollinator community diversity and how both of those factors influenced prevalence of several different bee pathogens. Wow, that sounds so interesting. I'm super excited to learn more and very grateful that your expertise is here with us today. But before we get into anything related to population declines or conservation efforts, could you start us off with just a brief explanation as to what pollination is and why it's so important? Pollination is the process of a plant getting fertilized. So on many plants, there are male and female parts and the male parts have pollen and the pollen needs to get to the female parts of the plant, and that allows the plant to produce a new seed and reproduce, and that often also produces fruits and vegetables that we like to eat. So it's a, it's a pretty critical process. But oftentimes, a flower is not self-compatible. So even though they might have both male and female parts, they can't self-fertilize within the same flower. Some can, but in many cases, a plant needs to get pollen from a different flower, and that poses a bit of a problem of how to transport that pollen. So that can happen through wind, it can happen through water, but as you might imagine, those processes are not very precise. So the most precise way of moving pollen is actually using an animal pollinator, and they can move that pollen as they're visiting different flowers. So which animals in particular are capable of engaging in pollination? So there's actually a wide variety of animals that can do pollination. So bats and other mammals and birds that are able to do pollination, but insects are probably the majority of pollinators. And this can include butterflies, flies, wasps, ants, and bees, which is what we most often think of when we think of pollinators. Wow, yeah, a lot more diversity in animal pollinators than you might originally think. I know you said how important it is for these plants to get pollinated, but what's in it for the pollinators? What are they getting out of this interaction? So basically these plants are producing food resources for these pollinators. And as they're visiting flower to flower to flower, they inadvertently will pollinate those flowers as well. And in some cases, flowers are specialized for those particular kinds of animals. And they have specialized structures that work with only those kinds of animals or attract only those kinds of animals. For example, Michelle focused much of her research on squash bees, who get most of their resources from squash plants. Another example might be hummingbirds, who have a preference for long red flowers. And in making themselves most attractive to one or two types of pollinators, these plants increase the chances that the genetic material in the pollen of one flower is used to pollinate a different flower of the same species, which results in a higher chance of fertilization and thus a higher rate of reproduction. So while most of us may imagine the generalist honeybee as the piece de resistance of pollination, Michelle Michelle says, 
In my experience, in my research even, I've found that sometimes, even if you have a honeybee colony placed right next to your field, they may not be visiting your field crops. Whereas with native bees, especially when you have a native bee that's specialized, they're going to focus particularly on that kind of crop species. So for example, with the squash bees, they don't care that there's another patch of wildflowers a mile away. They're going to focus on the squash flowers that are right in front of them. So while it might be a lot easier to get a honeybee where you want them, a specialized native bee might end up being a lot more efficient at pollinating a specific plant or type of plant once it's established in that location. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So that's a really good point. So these native bees are often not as easy to just, you know, plop down a colony uh, like you can with, with honeybees. You can with some bumblebee, but in general, most native bees are much less easy to manage. But what you can do is create an environment that is beneficial for both the kinds of floral resources that those native bees need, as well as their nesting resources. So this might be planting flowers that particularly native pollinators really are attracted to. We'll also have continuous flowers throughout the entire growing season, which is a really important feature of a pollinator habitat so that those pollinators have food resources at all times of year. Additionally, in order to live in a particular place, they need somewhere to rest and make their nests to produce their offspring. And this will help them begin reproducing locally and generating a population that's going to be sustainable right there, rather than having them have to migrate in to visit your plants every single time. How about on a broader scale? Is there any sort of density or frequency needed between pollinator areas that we should be aiming for? What is the larger environmental makeup that most native bees need? They often need to use patchy environments. You know, if you've created a pollinator patch within your garden and three or four doors down, someone else has, these bees are going to be able to move between those bases. They can move over a mile or two to be able to utilize different kinds of floral resources. More on what you can do in your own yard in just a little bit. Now, we would be remiss to talk about pollinator conservation without talking about why these animals are in need of help in the first place. So what are some of the factors that most negatively impact pollinator health? So pollinators and many other insects have been declining a lot in the last decade or so. And what's causing a lot of these declines is a loss of habitat, a broad usage of pesticides, as well as the spread of diseases. And so in particular with habitat loss, we're seeing conversion of natural spaces into urban and suburban areas. So the loss of all of those resources has been huge. You mentioned pesticide use as well. What are the effects on that front? pesticides have broad effects on many other insects. So if you're trying to target a pest species that's an insect, if you spray it during the day, then you may be hitting the bees that are trying to pollinate your plants as well. So there are many ways to, to change some of these things. So there's something called integrated pest management, and that is a way of changing our practices about how we're utilizing pesticides. So it's not saying stop using them entirely. It's just about being a little bit more scientific about keeping track of the actual pest numbers and applying the pesticides at the right time to be able to really knock down the pests in the right way without hitting your pollinators. But overall, just using less pesticides would probably be best. So pesticide use in general should probably be curtailed just a little bit. But it sounds like the real issue really comes about when you're targeting one pest, but don't take into account the dozens, if not hundreds of other insects that you might be impacting in that process. Yes, exactly. 
And you said with pesticide use, we can lessen it or specify it. But is there anything that can be done to counteract the loss of natural habitat? Thinking specifically about these expansive areas of monoculture agriculture, is there any hope for native bee populations there? There are some farm bill initiatives that give farmers money to plant native plants along their hedgerows. So these hedgerows are areas between fields that are often overgrown with weeds. And if you replace those, you know, non-native weeds with native flowering plants that are good pollinator resources, it would be beneficial for those pollinator populations, especially in those areas that have intense monocultures. That's awesome. I hadn't heard of those farm bills before. What about on the flip side of things? Are native bee populations able to live in more urban areas? Yeah, so there's a lot of ways that pollinators can live in in urban spaces. It's not for all species, I will say. Some native bees really need those natural spaces or really need those particular native plants. And so if that's a native plant that only grows deep in a forest, those pollinators will need to be deep in a forest as well. But for many other generalists and many native pollinators, they can actually do quite well in a in an urban or suburban environment that has uh, patchy uh, resources and, and areas that have plantings around. And this is exactly where Bee Campus USA comes into play. Bee Campus USA is an initiative by the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation who wanted to create a way to engage universities in the pollinator conservation effort. Expansive institutions, such as the University of Michigan, provide such a great opportunity to increase these patchy pollinator environments, given their size, resources, and willingness to experiment. Bee Campus USA focuses on the exact things that Michelle emphasized, increasing abundance of native plants, creating nest sites for native bees, and reducing the use of pesticides. But in order to make progress, you have to have a way to measure it. And with 3,000 acres of land to survey at the University of Michigan, that's a really daunting task. So while sustainable land use efforts have been a part of U of M for quite a while now, the real catalyst to the University of Michigan receiving this B-Campus USA designation ended up being a School for Environment and Sustainability master's project in which the Office of Campus Sustainability and Ground Services tasked the group with figuring out a way to assess pollinator supportive areas on campus and determine where gaps could be filled. I've got with me one of the sponsors of this very project. I'll let him introduce himself. My name is Bill Kronberg, Horticulture Supervisor with the Grounds Department, and thank you for sharing your time with me this morning. Yeah, thank you for being here. As you know, one of the main reasons that we're here today is to talk about the University of Michigan's new B Campus USA certification. So I'm so glad that I have you here today because not only were you one of the people pushing for the university to get this new certification, but also because of your history with Michigan Grounds and the active part that you've played in the university's transition toward a more sustainable landscaping culture. So could you kick us off with just a quick history of pollinator conservation on campus? In 2019, we passed our sustainability goals mainly by implementing organic fertilizer, working with Office of Campus Sustainability to protect the Huron River. For anyone not in the know, Bill is referring to a list of sustainability goals passed in 2006 to be achieved by 2025, and specifically the goal to reduce synthetic chemical application on grounds by 40%. The goal is primarily made to protect the Huron River from chemical runoff, but has had a very positive effect on pollinators as well. Okay, back to Bill. As far as pollinator, our staff has embraced pollinator health for decades. And we have lots of projects all throughout campus. We continue to install prairies 
taking lawn out of maintenance. We contract that out. We don't do it ourselves. We don't have the labor hours to do maintenance. So again, we contract that out, but we work with a, a reputable local contractor. And it's, you know, it's a process. It takes four to five years before you have something that's pretty. And it's not always just about pollinators. It's about what can live without regular irrigation. You know, Southeast Michigan gets pretty hot and humid in the summer. So we uh, try to be as proactive as we can in choosing what plants get installed on our campus. Could you tell us where we might be able to find some of these more wild and native spaces? Most of our prairies are on North Campus because that is more a suitable, less collegiate environment. You know, the Diag, very collegiate, not necessarily appropriate for a prairie. However, there are two wonderful examples of a native garden. One is at Dana and another's at BSB, Natural Science Museum, and those were very intentional. The Dana Garden was designed by a group of master's students, and likewise, down along Washtenaw Avenue at BSB was a, a native garden that was uh, installed by a another master's group as part of a project that resulted in us attaining B Campus USA. We'll loop back around to Bee Campus USA in just a second, but I do want to ask if there are any pollinator considerations that go into those more traditional, ornamental, collegiate areas on campus. We always consider pollinator-friendly plants. You know, I work with my staff. When we buy plants, why are we buying them? Like you said, is it just purely ornamental and a pop? A lot of our annual beds are uh, just a pop. You know, we, we want things to be beautiful and colorful and lively for commencement. And then when the parents and the students come back to campus, we do have, for instance, at the Mott Children's Hospital, there's a lovely butterfly garden. And we have green roofs that support an abundance of pollinators all throughout campus. I think we have nine. So we have lots of pollinator-friendly landscapes on campus, but not necessarily prairies. But of course, we definitely try to find a balance of, you know, pollinator friendly, resilient, but also provides a pop for uh, visitors. Yeah, that makes total sense. The prestigious university experience definitely comes with some visual expectations. With that, have there been any kind of pushbacks as you've expanded these more natural looking areas? Thinking specifically about how stark a contrast the Dana Building Garden is from the Diag that's just 100 feet away or so. Occasionally, but we, we're not a golf course. We understand that. That's the nature of, of working with native plants, that you don't have cookie-cutter landscapes. Our uh, customers and our students, staff, and faculty, they don't necessarily want that either. Uh, the faculty at Dana that walk in and out the doors, the students that walk in and out the doors every day get it. But a huge part of supporting pollinators is signage and education. And there are some very informative signs in the Dana Garden that kind of interprets what's going on. Yeah, I think in a lot of sustainability spheres, education is everything. Not to continue on my pessimistic streak, but just thinking of other potential limiting factors alongside lack of education. Is cost ever an issue when it comes to installing pollinator-friendly landscapes? Sometimes. It's not so much, I think, a matter of cost. It's a matter of talent and knowledge. You know, we have a really educated staff of horticulturists that work for the grounds department, but 
a traditional ground cover bed that has a few weeds that pop up, it doesn't take long to go through and to identify because you pretty much have a monoculture. But in a native garden, you have lots of variety and you really need to be able to pinpoint the invasive weeds and things like that. In a perfect world, you know, we'd have an army of naturalists and ecologists working with us, but we don't. So there's a balance between aesthetics and cost and ecology that we need to uh, always try to figure out. And we're always learning something new. And speaking of new things, we, of course, have to talk about Michigan's Bee Campus USA designation. So what are some things that might be changing going forward now that we have this new title? Well, there's criteria we need to maintain to keep our certification. We need to have educational events. We need to have a committee. We need to continue to support pollinator habitat, and we need to document it. It's not all about getting rid of chemicals. It's, it's uh, education and, and what, what you learn and you take forward to the other people that you meet and you network with. We understand that we need to have a resilient and sustainable landscape and we need to pivot and be adaptive to make sure that our campus is healthy and safe for humans, but as well as uh, pollinators. I mean, we're not going to solve the world's food shortage by doing this, but together, you know, thinking globally but acting locally is kind of what it's about. And with that, I'll leave you with one last note from Bill. Get into it. Ask questions. We're uh, We're not experts, but we definitely are enthusiasts on creating healthy pollinator habitat all throughout campus. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Bill, and for everything that you do on Michigan's grounds. It's so awesome to hear that such a big university is joining the pollinator conservation effort, and I'm excited to see where this B-Campus USA designation takes us in the future. Now, if you were sitting here and wondering if there's any way you can get involved in pollinator conservation at home, we've got one last guest to tell us about what he's been doing in his own backyard and how you can do it too. I'll let him introduce himself. Hi, my name is Stephen Parrish. I work at the University of Michigan Botanical Gardens. I've been there almost 12 years, and now I have the title of Natural Areas Manager. I do restoration work on the property. There's 800 plus acres on four properties. And I do primarily invasive plant management, but also native plant restoration. And you can even do that at home, you know, like I've done that in my backyard. I've converted my relatively small city base into these little prairie planting. Yeah, that sounds so cool. I can imagine that scaling from multiple university properties to a backyard might take a bit of adjustment. But from just a plant perspective, do you have any recommendations for natives that might work for someone interested in starting their own little pollinator plot? Some of the ones that are really successful and beautiful, yellow coneflower, monarda, which is also known as bee balm. Woodland poppy is one that's kind of fun. Really big space, if you have it, is green-stemmed echinacea, also known as, a, as joe pie weed, but there's a couple different species of joe pie weed. Um, I like butterfly weed. Um, columbine is one of my faves. Foxglove beard tongue, that's, that's a fun one pretty long-lasting flowers too. I have some some of the asters, like I have sky blue aster and smooth aster, New England aster, but, but those get big, so I wouldn't plant those on the edges, but maybe in the middle of your garden space. I like goldenrods, like the um, showy goldenrod. In the, if you have woodland settings or even a mixed 
like part sun, part shade, then you can go with a zigzag goldenrod and a blue-stemmed goldenrod. Another big, if you have big spaces again, ironweed can get really tall. Lots of showy purplish flowers. Black-eyed Susans are, are ones that bloom for long periods of time. And most of these are perennial. So you can plant them once and they're, they're going to be established. Wow. Yeah. So many options to choose from. So while listeners are certainly encouraged to rewind and take notes, do you have any suggestions for resources that might be helpful for someone looking to learn a bit more about this topic? U.S. Forest Service, uh, Nature Conservancy, really good resources online. You can actually basically Google how to start a native garden, planting guide. The city of Ann Arbor even has a list of species that would be suitable for the area if it's sun, if it's part sun, if it's shade. Uh, But there's a number of contractors in the area. If you are just really not sure what to put in there and you want to have a a consultation, uh, feralflora.com, it's it's a nursery installation, seeding and, and, and consultation. Plant-wise restoration, wild type is a great nursery for ecosystem services and and, and to get seed and, and native plants. There's a nonprofit called Adapt Community Supported Ecology, and they do consultations. They're connecting people with the land, providing plants, and and even removing invasive species. Mike Apple Environmental. So there's a lot of really local resources, uh, people that are in the business that, that do this. But if you want to do it yourself, you know, poke around, get some planting lists, figure out, you know, what, what's going to do best at your site. And Botanical Gardens, they have a, a plant sale um, in August. A lot of uh, local um, nurseries are, are stocking these again. And then you can plant in the fall, which fall plantings are, are going to be the best time to plant. I noticed you had a little emphasis on local in that last sentence. Are there benefits to buying local native plants other than, of course, supporting community businesses? So these are plants that are a local genotype, which is going to be better suited for our specific site. They're going to be more successful. Like the seed that was collected uh, in Michigan is, is going to be better suited than, say, if you purchased seed from, from Virginia or something. And the good thing about native plants is that they are suited for this climate. You know, I'd water them in when you first plant them, but you don't have to water them at all, and they're just thriving. So, so far in this podcast, we've been talking a lot about the benefits of native plants on pollinator health and pollinator conservation, but it sounds like there are some other benefits that native plants can provide that you might be hinting at. Could you speak on a few of those? Another benefit of these native gardens is that you don't have to mow the grass that maybe perhaps was once lawn. And grass roots are very shallow. They're only like maybe two inches. And with these heavy water events, a lot of the water can just rush off of those because it's not a very pervious, penetrating kind of root system, whereas these prairie plants have really deep roots, and so they can bust through that heavy clay. If anyone has tried to dig in Ann Arbor, you know, most of it is is this clay layer. But that busts through that, and then the water can trickle down that root system and actually serve as water filtration rather than having it just, you know, head into the storm drains. It's important to control rainwater. You know, if you want to just channel your gutters 
or if you have a driveway that kind of sheds water, with careful design, you can capture that water. And then you can have some really cool wetland plants growing in your yard. Another thing, especially with uh, this day and age of carbon sequestration and, and climate change, with a lawn, really, there's not much capturing of carbon. But these prairie plants have deep root systems, and so those are going to capture way more carbon. Yeah, that's super interesting that there are just so many benefits that can come from adding just a few native plants to your lawn space. But one thing that I spoke to Bill about was finding this balance between native benefits and aesthetic expectations. So in a country that is so big on lawn culture, have you experienced any questions from neighbors or stares from passerbys as you've adopted a more native looking landscape? You know, sometimes I planted some really tall plants right next to the sidewalk and they get tall. So sometimes they're like four feet tall. And then if a heavy rain comes, they just kind of flop over. If you don't keep them propped up or clip them back, then they can encroach into the sidewalk. And then you might get kind of some, some dirty looks. So, you know, maybe plant some of those lower growing species uh, next to the, the sidewalks and garden spaces. And my garden space looks great now, but in say the middle of winter when I still have all these dried stalks and the stems from the previous year poking out of the snow. I mean, sometimes that can be pretty, you know, if the plant has good form, but I'll clip some of it back. Uh, but I like to keep some because there are a host of insects that need those stems to have a home, really. Yeah, so not just about finding balance, but finding aesthetic beauty in the non-traditional sources. Now, Stephen, I've got one last question before I let you go. I know I've got some friends who are on board with pollinator conservation, but not so much with having more critters in their backyards. Is there anything you can say to the more insect-averse that might get them on board with the native landscape movement? Yeah, um, I love insects, and so I'm probably like biased. But if you're just kind of squeamish and you're not, you know, allergic to bees, then on a sunny day, like sit down, just see the the vast numbers and types of insects that are showing up on these blossoms. It's really quite amazing. There are just so many native beetles and flies and, and wasps. Not the bad kind of paper wasps that everyone hates, but these smaller, really important natural predators of, of pests. My daughter, I don't know where she got it from, maybe watching too many shows or something, but she's a little freaked out by the buzz of, of an insect going by creepy she's saying but she also loves collecting fireflies which are actually not flies but actually beetles they are not lightning bugs they're not a, a true bug and they're not a fly but they are a beetle so more aptly named would be uh, lightning beetles for anyone who thought this entomology podcast was etymology now you've got a little bit of both but she loves to collect those and she'll hold them and, and you know not get freaked out at all but I think showing that you are not afraid of uh, insects um, buzzing around can be a really good model for uh, your children or people around you. Michelle shared a very similar sentiment with me. Yeah, I just, I really encourage people to take a look around at the native bee diversity that might be even in your own backyard. Pretty incredible to see all of the different shapes and sizes and colors just see what you find on these these plants and who's coming to visit because you might see some some cool insects that you've never seen before 
And with that, we'll come to a close. I want to extend a huge thank you to Michelle, Bill, and Stephen for sharing their expertise with me and to the University of Michigan Museum of Natural History and the Office of Campus Sustainability for their parts in the creation of this podcast. Once again, my name is Lindsay Gooch. I appreciate all those who have been listening, and I hope you take with you the lessons that these three have taught us. Ask questions, look out for the little guy, and do your part where you can. Thanks.